life. Well, let's then bring in our next builder to teach us and to give us more tools to build this culture. Father Pavon, we thank you and we love you. Come and teach us some more. Well, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to give you some practical tools. We've been talking about a lot of the foundational stuff, and much of what I said this morning was, is very practical, and I really do appeal to you to follow through with it on a very practical way and to help you to understand that when I come into a, an area to give a talk like this, we don't want it simply to be uh, ideas that we share with you on that day, but we want to offer ourselves as an organization uh, with networking throughout the world to, to help you throughout the course of the year. We, we really want to be in, in partnership with you. We're, we're already in partnership uh, just by all belonging to this church and to this movement. Uh, we really want to work with you on a very concrete, practical level throughout the year as you implement uh, the things you hear today and as you carry on the work that you're already doing and that you've been doing for years. Don't hesitate to call upon us. Uh, our material that we have out on the table, all of it, of course, has our contact information. Uh, Priestsforlife.org is our website, and we have a multitude of information on that website. I mean, it's a library. I don't know how many. How many of you have been to the Priest for Life website? I, I, oh, my goodness. We've got some work to do. Okay. Uh, um, really, really, you have on this website... A library. I mean, it, it, you know, and one of the disadvantages we have is that, you know, a group called Priests for Life, people easily presume that, well, its material is for priests. Well, we have a lot of material for priests, but fundamentally the material is there for you. Uh, and um, not only in terms of print materials and, and, and resources like that, but audio materials. Uh, you can listen to talks in fact, you can listen to entire retreats uh, that I have given uh, to uh, people across the country on these topics uh, just by, by going there. Uh, in any case, I mention that because help we can give you throughout the year is, uh, is indicated there, and we want you to take advantage of it. Okay. Um, building a culture of life. I told you earlier that I want to go into some connections with the Eucharist, and, and, and I want to do that as the bulk of this presentation. But first, let me, let me, let me sh share a couple of other practical aspects of building. When we talk about building a culture, what do we really mean? A culture is a set of ways of life, really. It's the way we, we, we think about things, the way we talk about things, the way that we respond to different events in life and in society the habits that we form, the traditions that we embrace, all of this constitutes culture. When we talk about building a culture of life, what's the building block? What's the, the, uh, the, 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 the unit, the basic unit of that culture? It's the family, right? It's the family, and then beyond that, it's the families gathering together in the parishes. So you want to think, when you talk about building a culture of life, about what's going on in the family and what are the families doing in the context of the parish. Within the family, pregnancy is obviously a key event that happens to which then we respond. And we respond in one way or another. And the way we respond tells us what kind of culture we're living in. The culture of death responds to a pregnancy by pushing the woman to an abortion. And I say pushing very deliberately because we have to understand and help others to understand the fact that the vast majority of those walking into abortion mills today do not want to be there. That's the, the, the cruel irony of the, of the phrase freedom of choice is that women don't get abortions because of freedom of choice. They get them because they feel they have no freedom and no choice. They are being forced, pressured, intimidated. They are desperate. They feel trapped. That's why they are there, not because, oh, isn't this great? The Supreme Court gave me this choice. I think I'll exercise it today. Just the opposite is going on. 
Just the opposite. Culture of death responds to the event of, of pregnancy in that particular way. We have to look at the role of men here in, in, in also with some deep concern because you know the law does not give the father of the child any rights whatsoever over the ultimate decision of whether the child lives or dies by abortion. And, and, and this puts the men in a dilemma because the flip side, if you don't give them any rights, then you're inviting them not to take any responsibility. The flip side of rights is responsibilities. So you say to the father, oh, you, you, you don't have any say in whether your own child lives or dies, then, then, then the message he's getting is, well, then why should I care? If I, if I try to approach this, 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 this woman whom I've made pregnant uh, by uh, saying, uh, you know, don't worry, we can get through this, give birth to the child, I'm by, I'm by your side, you know, we should have this baby. Well, then that could be interpreted by her as, oh, well, you're, why are you trying to interfere with my, my right to choose? Whereas if the man, as many of them do, try to take a step back and say, well, I want to respect her right to choose, that can be interpreted and received by the woman as, well, why is he so distant? Why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he lift the finger to help the situation? So you see the man is put in a, in a, in a, in a dilemma here where whatever he does or doesn't do, he can be, he can be uh, accused of uh, not caring or of doing the wrong thing. So the whole approach that our, our culture takes towards the man is, uh, is still an unexplored, a very unsatisfactory area. Uh, and, 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 and we need to begin talking more about that in our own circles, in our parishes, and in our families. Uh, the role of the parents, likewise. You, I can't tell you how many times in front of abortion mills, and I'm sure many of you who go out and do sidewalk counseling have seen the same thing, where it is the parents of the young woman who are bringing her there. Or, or, or pressuring her to have that abortion. And um, the pressure might be very explicit and external, but the pressure might also be implicit. And what do I mean by that? I mean when, 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 when one of these young women says, oh, well, I, I haven't told my parents I could never tell them. In fact, I'm getting this abortion precisely so that they won't find out. Well, why wouldn't we want them to find out? Well, fundamentally, she doesn't want to hurt them or disappoint them. But here we have to ask ourselves a question. And you as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, this is, this is a, a, a spiritual point here now for our own examination of conscience. We walk a fine line when we try to impart to our, to our children and grandchildren uh, the norms of sexual behavior and morality. We, we certainly want to impart to them an appreciation of chastity. As we do so, however, we sometimes inadvertently convey the idea that should they break that virtue, boy, are they going to be in trouble. Well, yes and no. I mean, if they break that virtue, yeah, you, 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 you're in big trouble in the sense that, first of all, you violated the law of God, and your life has changed forever. I mean, even aside from the question of getting pregnant, you have sexual intimacy with some, somebody, your life has changed forever from that point on. We, we cross a certain line, and it has tremendous, tremendous psychological, emotional, and physical implications. So, yeah, it's a big deal. But when somebody becomes pregnant, she also needs our unconditional acceptance, which is not an approval of the activity that led her to get pregnant, but which is an approval of her, which is an endorsement of our love and our unconditional acceptance of her, that we're always by her side, that we're always standing with her. And here, brothers and sisters, we can sum up in, 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 in a few words the response of the church to the culture of death. The response of the church to the culture of death is also the response of the family to the culture of death and is also the response of parents to their children, grandchildren, or nieces that might be in... in 
entwined in the culture of death, and that response is summed up by four words. I am with you. What does Jesus say to us in our suffering? We who are living under the shadow of death, what does he say? I am with you. Emmanuel, God is with us. He doesn't look at us, as one song says, he doesn't watch us from a distance. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves. And what does he do when he sees us suffering and he sees us dying? What does he do? He jumps into it. We have Christ on the cross. He jumped into our suffering and death. Well, brothers and sisters, that's how we respond to the culture of death. That's how we build the culture of life. We don't stand at a distance and look down and judge and point fingers. We embrace the person. I am with you. Now, how do we convey that to our daughters, granddaughters, and nieces and grandnieces? How do we convey to them that we will be unconditionally always on their side? even if they came to us having to admit that they violated a key aspect of Christian virtue that we tried to impart to them, that's the challenge. And the first step towards doing it, to imparting to them that, yeah, I'm with you no matter what you do. At the same time, that doesn't mean do what you want. And he says, isn't that the challenge? I want to impart to her, I'm always with her no matter what she does. And, and, and at the same time, not impart to her, you could do what you want. There's a fine line between the two. And the first step towards conveying that delicate balance is to get it right in your own heart and mind. I love this person no matter what this person does, and I need to tell them that. And at the same time, I need to tell them, you know, you're only going to be happy if you do what's right. But I say this because it can be an implicit pressure. Now, of course, when most of these young ladies end up getting the courage with the help of, of others to tell their, their parents what has happened, they find out that their worst fears were not, should not have been fears at all. They find that acceptance. They find that encouragement. And I'm sure they would find that encouragement from you if you were in that situation. And maybe some of you, in fact, have been. But this is a key aspect of the, uh, uh, building the culture of life, inculcating this, and discussing it too. Parents, groups, parents, groups that get together, got to discuss this with other parents, with other grandparents. Furthermore, by the way, in terms of being a grandparent, you know, I preach on this issue every Sunday. I'm in a different state. It's really, it's really marvelous. I love seeing all the the, the variety of the church around the country on the uh, on so many in so many ways. Uh, but sometimes in the congregations where I preach where they're primarily older people, uh, people will come up to me and say, well, Father, you know, I, I thank you for coming. Nice to have you at our parish. Uh, uh, I'm, obviously, I'm beyond childbearing age, so this really isn't my issue. Oh, yes, it is. I say, you might be too old to have a child, but you're never too old to love one, and you're never too old to save one. We never graduate, brothers and sisters, from our obligation to love or to stand up for justice for the weak and the oppressed. So you're never too old for abortion to be your concern and your issue. Uh, and this is what we try to convey to folks. And you know, it comes across, as I mentioned, culture is also the way we talk about things. It comes across in the way we talk about someone who's pregnant or about ourselves if we're pregnant. We say, very often we hear, and I'm talking about the most dedicated, faithful, pro-life Catholics talking in the following way. Oh, isn't it great? I'm having another child. I'm going to have a baby. Now, what's wrong with that way of talking? You already have one. Are you saying you're pregnant? Are you trying to tell me you're pregnant? If you are, you're not going to have a baby. Oh, I'm expecting a child. Well, if you're expecting a phone call, the phone call hasn't come yet. If you're expecting a package, it hasn't arrived yet. You're expecting a baby. Where is the baby now? Now, I'm expecting a child from where? I'm going to bring a child into the world. Well, what world is he in now? Uh, Ma'am, how many children do you have? I have two and one on the way. On the way from where? <laughs> and this kind of language, we have to be, 
we have to be careful because we use this kind of language. We use it. And, and it, of course, you know, I mean, we use this language. Not that we're saying anything wrong. But what I'm saying is it, 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 if you really think about it, it reflects a different kind of culture. It reflects a culture which has been far too long a, the sum and substance of the way we think and live and breathe. When you really think what's being said there, it reflects the attitude that the child in the womb really isn't there yet, really isn't real yet. And, and, and building a culture of life means we start thinking and talking according to the full truth of the matter. And the full truth of the matter is that when you're pregnant, that child is already fully there, fully a person, and morally equivalent to a born child and, in fact, to you and me. That, that, that's the fullness of the truth on this, on this matter. And therefore, we count our children that way. So someone who has two born children and one in the womb, how many children do you have? I have three. Two are, are, are born and one is unborn. And if you lose an unborn child, I'm sure there are people here who have gone through the sadness of miscarriage uh, and perhaps some of you even abortion. Um, how many children do you have? Two living, one deceased. And, and sometimes, and you know this as well as I, People who have had miscarriage, there'll be, be, somebody will ask them how many children they have, and they won't count the one that died or the two that died or however many they miscarried. They won't count them. Brothers and sisters, in a culture of life, they count. They count. Now, when it comes to miscarriage, because we're living in a society that, as I said this morning, has officially declared that the unborn are not persons, that translates over into how we deal with the unborn in contexts other than abortion, and namely miscarriage. And, and people will sometimes say hurtful things, unintentionally, but, but really hurtful things to somebody who's had a miscarriage. What will they say? They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, don't, don't feel so bad. You know, you can always have another child. Or, or don't worry, the child wasn't that wasn't that well-developed yet anyway. Well, that's actually a hurtful thing to someone who's had a miscarriage. That doesn't console them. I mean, if you lost a two-year-old, you know, nobody would say to you, oh, don't, don't, don't feel so bad, you can always have another child. They wouldn't say, oh, don't worry, the child wasn't that fully grown yet. That's not the point. The point is, you lost a child. And that's as painful if the child was, was, was unborn as at any other stage. The reality is... You will always be the parent of that child, always. And, and, and if you lose that child, it hurts. Here's the problem. The hurt is not being properly acknowledged in the culture of death. And to build a culture of life, we have to start acknowledging that hurt, acknowledging that child. One of the ways we acknowledge the child is to name the child. And I strongly urge people to name their baby as soon as they know they're pregnant. Now, of course, well, you might not always know if it's a boy or a girl. At a certain point in pregnancy, if you want to do the diagnostics necessary, you can find out. Otherwise, some people prefer to be surprised at birth. That's fine. The point is, you can at least choose two names, but you really choose them. You say, look, this is Jane or John, but that's who this is. You don't just say, well, this is my baby. Someday I'll name the baby. Well, when? Well, when the baby is born, well, why are you going to wait until then? Really, let's think about it. Why would you wait until then? A, any per, a, a person, every person has a name. And that's the point. If this is a person, like we're trying to say it is, well, then give him or her the name that he or she deserves. Every person has a name. In the culture of life, every person has a name. And so we name the, chil- name the child as early on as possible. And if in the course of the pregnancy the mom and dad find out that it's a boy, well then, okay, the final decision gets made. This is John. This is Sam or whatever. Similarly, if the child is lost in miscarriage, name that child too. And then here's an exciting project that we've embarked upon is to encourage individuals who suffer miscarriage to have, to, first of all, to request, if it's possible, 
if, for example, they're in the hospital at the time that it occurs or if otherwise it's possible, to retrieve the body of that child and have a funeral mass and have a proper burial. Can we do this in the church? Absolutely. And there's more and more people who are doing this. Why not? This is a member of the family. I was recently in North Carolina and met a family that underwent this whole process not too long ago. Uh, the uh, mom had a miscarriage at about, about seven or eight weeks and had a, 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 a whole process. Uh, asked the doc- she was in the hospital at the time, asked the doctor, got the b- baby's body, uh, went to the funeral director. They had a little tiny casket. Uh, went to the priest, had a full funeral mass, went to the cemetery, had a stone, had inscribed the child's name. And I was there just at the time when the new stone arrived and I was able to bless the stone and the grave. Well, this is the kind of activity that we should foster in the culture of life. Let's, we, we do this for a, a, a newborn infant who dies. Let's do it for an unborn infant who dies. And if you can't retrieve the body, well, of course, sometimes it's not possible. Have the mass anyway. Name the child. Have a proper, a proper ceremony so that we do what? So that we express and process our grief. If we have a loss... We have to grieve because grief is an adjustment to a loss. We have to grieve together. And this leads me into a second practical area of reflection. Those that have had abortions. Do you know what one of the key causes of post-abortion grief is? It's simply this. The grieving mother and father, for that matter, are not allowed to grieve. Think about it. We have hallmark cards for all kinds of occasions, happy and sad. Did you ever see a hallmark card that says on the occasion of your abortion? We don't make hallmark cards for abortion. Why not? And it's an interesting question. We don't, they're not, there aren't, you don't see cards in the card store conveying condolences on your abortion. Certainly not on congratulations either. Well, why not? Because we're living in a culture that doesn't acknowledge that there's a reason to grieve if you've had an abortion. Why? Well, because you just exercise your free choice, you know, it's a right, and all this nonsense that masks over the fact that you will grieve if you lose that child. You will grieve. You'll grieve even more if you were at least partially responsible for the death of that child. You'll grieve. Now, we have countless women out there who are grieving, and dads as well, over their aborted children. We have to help them grieve. And you see, this is where the church helps, because when we say abortion is as bad as it is, we're not hurting the people that have had abortions. We're helping them. Why are we helping them? Because we're validating their grief. You see, what the pro-choice community makes them feel like is that they feel somehow silly for feeling sad. Pro-choice community tells them it's no big deal. You don't have any reason to be sad. And so they, their shame and their grief ends up being all dealt with by themselves, isolated, in secret, behind the scenes, and doesn't get processed properly and begins to eat away at the personality of that individual. And so the post-abortion syndrome ends up having all kinds of strange characteristics resulting in some very destructive behavior, all the while because this person hasn't been allowed to grieve. More and more of those that have had abortions over the last 30 years are now finding new strength. And they are saying, you know what? For the longest time, the voices of pro-abortion women in our society made me keep silent because I felt out of place for saying that I was sad at the loss of my child. But you know what? I'm not going to be silent anymore. Because now I have a new inner strength. I understand what happened to me. I understand what I did. I take responsibility for it. And I'm not going to be afraid to say I'm sorry and to say it out loud. And now we have a whole movement of women who are coming out publicly saying, I regret my abortion. I'm not afraid to talk about it. And we have organized and are organizing these women in a movement called the Silent No More Awareness Campaign. The Silent No More Awareness Campaign is an effort of the church 
specifically our organization working together with the Episcopalians for Life and various other groups, to give these women an opportunity to speak. Just last week, we had an event again in Washington. We did it back in January, and we did it again last week at the Supreme Court where women who've had abortions gathered in front of the steps of the court and they held these big, beautiful signs saying, I regret my abortion. And they spoke publicly. Each of them took a turn and spoke for a couple of minutes about their abortion experience. The national spokesperson for this campaign, by the way, is someone you'll, I think all of you, except for the young, youngest elements of our audience, will know who, who this is, uh, the actress and model Jennifer O'Neill. Uh, had an abortion and is is part of this campaign and speaks out. On the day after tomorrow, we'll be doing this again on the streets of New York City. And we'll have women with us, and some of you may also know, you remember Melba Moore, the, uh, the black singer, and uh, she was in Hair and, and other things. She's a, won a Tony Award. She's had many abortions, and she has come forward now. She contacted us not that long ago and said, I want to speak out, too, about my abortion. So you see, there's something new is happening here. Women have always spoken out about their abortions, but the, 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 the extent to which it's happening is stronger now than ever before. And this becomes a powerful way of building a culture of life. And the Holy Father talks about this. The bishops talk about it in the document I mentioned this morning. They talk about the fact that the voices of women who have been harmed by this procedure are going to be among the most eloquent voices to lead us back to a culture of life. So I want you to encourage this particular movement, and if there are people in your own communities, as obviously there are, who have had abortions, who are coming through healing, who want to be part of this Silent No More campaign, let me know, because we'll tie them into not only this campaign by which they speak out, but we'll tie them into all kinds of additional help that they can find for their own personal spiritual growth and healing and trusting in the mercy of God. All right, let me move now into another uh, uh, set of considerations, brothers and sisters. And it has to do with the center of our faith, the center of any conference like this that we have, and that's the Eucharist itself, the Blessed Sacrament, the body and blood of the Lord. You know, we are not saved outside of or apart from the flesh of Christ. It is the body of God that saves us because he brought that body and blood to the cross to be offered in reparation for our sins. When we say the chaplet of divine mercy, what do we offer to the Father? The body and blood, as well as the soul and divinity of Christ. But it's the body and blood. We're forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ. Yesterday at this Philadelphia conference, a man came up to me after uh, the talks, and he said, uh, he said, Father, he said, someone like Dr. Nathanson, who personally was responsible for 75,000 abortions and, 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 and worked to get this whole thing legalized, now he's a baptized Catholic practicing 100% pro-life, this man asked me, well, how does someone like him, how can someone like him be forgiven? And I said, well, first of all, <laughs> let's not underestimate the seriousness of our own sins. I mean, the question of how Dr. Nathanson can be forgiven is really the same question, how can I be forgiven? The sins that I've committed. But aside from that, oh, we reflect on the answer, and, it, and I told him the answer is that Jesus Christ, God himself, died for us. He went to the cross. His blood was shed. And one drop of that blood can cleanse a million worlds of, of all their sins. So this is the reality of this. And it's a physical reality. And that's why we come to church. You know, there's people in, 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 that we all know who say, well, I don't see why I have to come to church. I believe in God. I, I, I pray to Him at the seashore, in the, uh, in the park, in the mountains, uh, you know, uh, in the sunset, and, and, and in my home. I find God there. Well, that's nice. I mean, you know, so do I. I mean, he's there. Well, that's not the point. 
The point is not, well, how do I want to find God or how do I want to worship Him? The point of religion is, what does He want from me? How does He want to be worshipped? Well, He told us, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So we come here because God has a body. Now, if God has a body with which He saves us and feeds us, well, then so do we. We not only have a body, we are a body. Let me ask you a question. What is more you, your body or your soul? What is more you? At this, mo at this moment, I mean. Both equally, you are as much the body of your soul as you are the soul of your body. The, 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 the Christian view of the human person is that we are a body-soul unity. If, if I drop a, a, a book on your, on your foot, you say, you hurt me. If I step on your toe, you hurt me. If I cut your finger accidentally, you, hurt, you cut me is what we say, right? You could say, I cut my finger, but you can also say, I cut myself with equal amount of truth. We are our bodies. And this is a very important concept. In building a culture of life, we've got to get this straight, that we are just as much our body as our soul. Let me show you the danger of thinking the other way around. There are lots of people who think that they essentially are a soul that is using a body. Well, if you're a soul that's using a body, then your body is, becomes something like your big pen. I mean, I'm using my pen. Now, what happens when the pen runs out of ink? I throw it away. What happens if it breaks? I, I don't have to use it anymore. If it's something I use, then it's valuable only when it's useful. But if it's me, then it's always valuable. The idea that the body is just something that I use gives rise to people saying, oh, I can do what I want with my body. And do you ever think of that? I mean, how do you answer that when somebody tells you, uh, oh, well, they're, they're pro-choice because after all, it's my body. I can do what I want with my body. How do you answer that? Well, your body is not a thing that you do something with. It's you. What do you mean do? I can do, listen how it goes, I can do what I want with my body. So I am over here and my body is over there. Is that what you're saying? I can do what I want. So you're saying I with my body. I can do what I want with my pen. Well, not even that is true. I can't forge your signature on an official document. I can't use it to poke you in the face. I, I cannot do what I want with my pen. And even if my body were a possession that I have, I cannot do what I want with it. I know that well enough flying around as much as I do. You can't even stand up in an airplane during taxi and takeoff. You break a federal law, you know. They'll stop the plane. They'll throw you off the plane. I was on a plane one time. We were taxiing down, go to the runway. All of a sudden, we stop, turn around, go back to the gate. Guys with red jackets come on the plane. They escort a young man off the plane. Meanwhile, the rest of us are looking around. What's going on here? Who's this guy? After they got him off the plane and pushed back away from the gate, pilot comes on the intercom and says, sorry, folks, for the delay. We had to um, escort a passenger off the plane because he refused to comply with crew member instructions to fasten a seatbelt. I can do what I want with my body. No, not in the United States of America, you can't. <laughs> he was in big trouble. So, the, 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 so even if, even if, this were true. Uh, it's not true. I can't do what I want with my body. But, that, but the truth is even deeper than that. Your body is you. It's you. Now, why is this so important? Well, for example, many young women that I've counseled in uh, crisis pregnancy have said things like this. And maybe you've heard this. Father, I know that this is a child. I know that God gave me this child. But I'm not ready yet. So I'm going to give the child back to God. You know, about a year ago, I received a fascinating invitation. The invitation was to an abortion clinic by the administrator. 
the reason she invited me was that I, I freely dialogue with these people. Anyone that wants to sit down and talk, I'll sit down and talk with them. And I'll tell them, I want to listen to you. You know that I don't agree with you. No, you know that I never will agree with you. But at the same time, I'm talking about these things every day. I want to make sure I'm, 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 I know what I'm talking about. So if I'm going to talk about what you do, I might as well hear you explain it. So they, 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 they respond to that. You know, it's easy for a person to say to you, I don't want to listen to you. It's very hard for them to say, I, want, I don't want you to listen to me. So you give them an opportunity to talk to you, they often take it. So this administrator invited me to come in and have a tour. It was on a day that they were not, they were not doing the procedure. So I went in. First thing I saw, lining all the walls of this particular clinic, were paper hearts cut out of red construction paper pasted all, all over the walls and on the hearts there were written words from the moms and dads who went there to have their babies killed and I asked the administrator I said do you mind if I take the time to read each and every one of these hearts and she said yes go ahead you can read them and I did I read every last word and very often here's the kind of sentiment that was expressed on those hearts my dear child, I love you, and I'm sorry that I cannot take you now. And so I'm going to send you back, little spirit, to God who made you, and maybe someday when I am ready, I will accept you back again. Yeah, false doctrine, reincarnation. But reincarnation is not the only false doctrine there. The other false doctrine is what we call dualism. Because she addressed the child as spirit. Now obviously we know that the child has a soul. And the child has an immortal soul, just as we all do. The soul survives after death. The body does not, but the body will be raised. But the problem here is that she addressed the child as a spirit and therefore came to the conclusion that the act of abortion was really not a destruction of the person. It was simply sending the spirit back to God. No, ma'am, you're not sending the spirit back to God. You're destroying that baby. That's what you're doing. You're, you're crushing that child. You're pulling his arms and legs off. You're, you're, you're dismembering that child. That's what you're doing. And you see, what, you see what I'm trying to say here, that if we see the human person just as a spirit... It leads to things like this. They justify this violence because they overlook the violence. They just look at it as some kind of transfer of spirits instead of the tear, violent tearing apart of a human body. I talked to an abortionist one time, Martin Haskell. Those of you especially from Ohio, you know that name. Martin Haskell is the one who does the partial birth abortion procedure and writes about it and teaches other doctors how to do it, if you can call them doctors. And I said to him, Dr. Haskell, how do you justify doing this procedure? And he said to me, I don't know when the child receives a soul. And so I said to him, so what? Brothers and sisters, what matters is not whether or not the child has a soul. What matters is that the child has a body. And this procedure is tearing that body apart. And that's why it's wrong. And that's enough to know that it's wrong tears apart the body. The laws that protect your body against somebody trying to tear it apart really don't care whether or not you have a soul. And it really doesn't matter if the person who's attacking you believes that you have a soul or not. The point is, whether they believe that or not, they are not allowed to attack your body. They're not even allowed to touch your body without your permission. So, therefore, same thing with the unborn. So, anyway, in the culture of life, what happens to the body matters. Matter matters. And matter matters with human beings. Matter matters with the human being who is also God, Jesus Christ. And that's why the Eucharist matters. If matter matters, if the body matters, then the Eucharist matters. And here, therefore, you see a great correlation. Did you ever meet somebody devoted to Eucharistic adoration and a daily recipient of the Holy Eucharist who was pro-abortion? Very, very, very highly unusual. There are pro-abortion 
quote, Catholics, but they tend not to be very devoted to the Eucharist. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history of our country in the last four decades, as abortion was increasing and becoming more acceptable and more frequently practiced and more legal, what was decreasing? Church attendance and specifically what? Devotion, adoration. Devotion to the Eucharist was declining all during the time that the abortion ethic was rising. Now, brothers and sisters, the reverse has begun to happen. The numbers of abortions are going down, and not only are the numbers going down, the rate and the ratio of abortions are going down. In other words, the proportion between the number of, 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 of abortions and live births and the proportion between the number of women who get abortions and the number of women of childbearing age generally. They're all going down. It's less practiced today. And what's going up? Adoration, Eucharistic devotion is on the rise. Here's a fascinating thing. Oh, this is a great statistic, by the way. It's very encouraging. You know, abortion mills are closing all the time. In the last 10 years, the number of abortion mills in this country has been cut in half. That's how many have closed in the last 10 years. And that's, that's thanks to so many of you, what you do, what you do in, in, in this movement. This is, is having an effect. These places are closing. You know, they're crumbling from the inside. They, they, they just can't, they, they, they can't sustain themselves. You can never sustain yourself on a lie or on an evil practice. So anyway, no, they're, they're really in trouble as a business. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, should we change laws or should we change minds and hearts? Well, I'll give you a third option. Just put them out of business. You don't have to worry about either the laws or the minds and hearts. You just close them down, you know, and there's lots of ways to do that. And they are closing down. The point is that the number of freestanding abortion mills right now in our country is about 750. Do you know how many perpetual adoration chapels there are? Now, when I say perpetual, I'm talking about 24-7. There's a lot that have it just 9 to 5 or 6 to 6 or something like that. But I'm talking about 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. There are approximately, as far as we can figure out, about 670 perpetual adoration chapels. 670, 750. The abortion mills keep closing. The adoration chapels keep opening. Pretty soon, pretty soon, the numbers are going to reach equal level. And then the number of places where the body is worshipped will outnumber the places that the body is destroyed. And then maybe there will be a spiritual balance at that moment, a tipping of the balance that we will see quickly an end brought to this evil. Maybe, but there's something going on here. There's something real going on here. Because what we do when we worship the Eucharist is exactly the opposite of what is done in, in abortion. The mentality is completely different. The reality is completely different as well. And I, you've heard me say before, we should never tire of reflecting on this, that the same words by which Jesus gives us the Eucharist, the words that reveal to us the meaning of life, the meaning of love, that I love means what? I sacrifice myself for the good of the other person. Abortion is just the opposite. I sacrifice the other person for the good of myself. But the same words are used to defend both activities. This is my body. This is my body. I can do what I want, even if it means killing you, casting you away, throwing the baby aside. It's my body. I control it. We come here and we hear, this is my body given up for you. I don't control it so that you die. I give it away so that you live. The same four little words, what changes it completely is for you. The understanding that the purpose of life and the heart of the culture of life is that we give ourselves away for the other person. That's human happiness and fulfillment. That's where we find our purpose in life, when we give ourselves away to the other person. So spouse to spouse, what do you say when you get married? This is my body given for you. I mean, that's, 
that's the essence of what you're saying in those vows. What do you say to your children? This is my body given up for you. And what are we, what's a priest supposed to say to his congregation? What's a bishop supposed to say to his diocese? This is my body given for you. My time, my talent, if necessary, even my physical life. This is my body given for you is what we say to one another when we try to build a culture of life. Building a civilization of love means practicing these words. This is my body given for you at every moment. Here's what defines our life. And so it shows us, doesn't it, that the devil mocks God. You know, he can't kill God. He would like to. So he does the next best thing. He kills what is made in the image of God, human life. And the devil knows that he was defeated by those four little words, this is my body. And so what he tries to do in his rage is to take those same four words and turn them back on the Lord and say, ah, I'm going to take these same four words that you used to overthrow the kingdom of death, and I'm going to continue the kingdom of death using those very same words. You've got to think that the devil wants to do it that way. He always mocks God. And if he can insult that which is holy and spiritual by taking it and inverting it and using the very tools of life to bring death, that's what he'll do, and that's what he does. We're in the middle of a very profound spiritual conflict here. You know, one of the most moving masses that I ever said was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in, an off, in, a, in a building that used to be an abortion clinic. It has now been closed down. It has been taken over by pro-life people, and they've made a memorial out of it. It's called the American Holocaust Memorial in Baton Rouge. If you're ever there, Take a look at this place. It's really marvelous. But one of the rooms that was one of the procedure rooms is now a chapel. Well, it's a very small room. And if you have Mass in there, you can only have about six people in the congregation. I said Mass there one Sunday. It was one of the most moving experiences I ever had because there I stood and I took bread and I said, This is my body. And I was very aware at that moment that in this very room, bodies were torn apart because people were saying, this is my body. And then I took the chalice and I spoke over that wine the words, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all so that sins will be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. And I stood there and I said, now in this room, in this room where at one time, in fact many times, the blood of innocent babies flowed in this room from those who had made a covenant with death, now the blood of another innocent person is flowing, that which speaks more eloquently, that of Christ himself in a new covenant, not with death, but with life. What a drama this is that we're involved in. Two different worlds clashing. Two different cultures warring with each other. And it's a war, brothers and sisters, that we cannot divorce ourselves from. We're necessarily right in the middle of it. So part of what I'm saying to you is your very adoration of the Eucharist advances the culture of life. And you see it and you understand it when you think about these dynamics that I've outlined for you here. How the culture of the Eucharist, if you will, overcomes the culture of abortion. And there are many different parallels between the Eucharist and our pro-life commitment. This is my body is perhaps the most powerful of those parallels. But there are many more as well, in parallels that we don't have time to go into right here and right now, uh, but parallels that are very, very well worth our meditation and reflection. When you have Eucharistic adoration, therefore, please make sure that prayers explicitly are offered to the heart of Jesus beating in that Eucharist for the bodies, for the hearts of those little babies that are threatened. Be, 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 be sure that prayers are offered as we kneel there and say, yes, Jesus, this is your body. That, that, that prayers are offered for those who right now are saying, this is my body, and are tempted to abort that child. Make sure that pro-life prayers 
are part and parcel of the adoration of the Eucharist. Because then that'll help people to make the connection. And when we worship the Eucharist, are we not also worshiping the mercy of the, of the heart of Christ? Because it was His mercy by which He took on a body. It was His mercy that led Him to the cross. And so when we're there at the Eucharist, whether at Mass or at Adoration, we are imploring His mercy for us and for the world. Many people have begun to learn and have continued to, to adopt the practice of praying the chaplet of divine mercy. Did you know that on March the 25th of this year, the Pope signed a special, personally signed a special apostolic blessing to all those who pray the chaplet of divine mercy? And it's fascinating what he did. First of all, he says in the Apostolic Blessing that when St. Faustina was given this prayer, God told her that he wanted his mercy invoked upon the world for all the sins of the world. But Jesus also told her the sin that was above all the others in its magnitude and for which mercy had to be implored was the sin of abortion. And did you know that Sister Faustina had several experiences where she experienced terrible pains in, in her abdomen. They didn't know what, what it was, where it was coming from. And Jesus revealed to her that she was given a share in the pain of abortion. And he wanted to give her that experience to highlight the fact that this abomination before God had to be, had to be covered with his mercy. And therefore, he gave her the chaplet. The Pope, in this apostolic blessing, actually inserts that into the wording of the blessing. This is a very unusual blessing. He inserts that reference to St. Faustina's experiences into the blessing. And then he says, I want to bless those who pray the chaplet, especially for the following intentions. And then he lists several intentions. That babies not be aborted for their moms and dads. And then he goes on to pray for the abortionists, that they be converted. Then he goes on to talk about victims of Stem cell research, genetic manipulation, and cloning. He mentions those words in the apostolic blessing. Let me tell you, in the history of the church, there has never been an apostolic blessing that talks about victims of genetic manipulation and cloning. And he mentions euthanasia. And then finally he says, makes a reference to what we talked about this morning. He says, and to pray for those entrusted with the government of peoples that they may work for justice and life. This is an apostolic blessing. And what's most, what's most meaningful about it? The date on which it's issued. By the way, when you read a document from the Vatican, a statement that comes out from the Pope, pay attention to the date on which it was issued because normally when the Vatican issues a document, they make a significant, they issue it on a date that has some kind of significant relationship with the theme of the document itself. So this blessing was, was issued on March 25th. The significance being what? That annunciation, which is the day that God took on a body. A body. Remember everything I've been saying here. A culture of life acknowledges the personal importance of the body. God took a body at the annunciation. March 25th, the Pope issues this blessing to those who pray against the destruction of the bodies and ask God's mercy for the destruction of the bodies of these children. Do you know the date on which his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, was issued? It was in 1995, and the day was March 25th. The Gospel of Life. And the Pope goes so far in that encyclical to say, that because God took on a body, because God became one of us, and he's not exaggerating, what he says in that encyclical twice is, therefore an attack on even a single human being is an attack on God. A rejection of a single human life is a rejection of Jesus Christ. Building the culture of life Brothers and sisters, 
read these beautiful documents. Make sure that you read the Gospel of Life, that encyclical letter. Go back and reread it. Meditate on it. Let it lift you up spiritually. Let it inform you intellectually. Let it motivate you with new energy in this cause. I want to conclude here by just thanking you for the, the witness that you give to the culture of life. You know, if everything you have done in your life, if all the efforts of all the pro-life organizations put together over the course of the last three decades, all the money that's been spent, all the lives that have been, that have been poured out, the people have risked their reputation. Some of you have been in prison for the defense of human life. All the sacrifice that has been poured out, all the prayers beyond counting poured out for this cause, if all of it, brothers and sisters, were directed only to the saving of a single life, and if furthermore that effort failed and that life was snuffed out by abortion, do you know that all that effort would be more than worth it? even if done only to save a single life, and even if that effort failed, all that prayer and sacrifice is worth it because there is no way to calculate, to define, to describe the value of a person. No way. It's infinite. And that's why when I go around from place to place, I'm always grateful when people say to me, Oh, Father, we're very inspired by your talks. We love the TV programs, the radio programs, the literature. That's great. I delight in that. But you need to know that as I go around, as I come here, I am inspired also by you and the commitment and the ongoing work, the ongoing faith. Brothers and sisters, we are going to succeed. We're not just trying to build a culture of life. We're going to succeed. We have to keep doing this work with that utmost confidence because we're not just working for victory. We are working from victory. Victory is our starting point. It's the beginning. It's what makes us the church. Victory has been placed in our hands. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen. He's alive. He has overthrown the kingdom of death. Do this work, therefore, with that exceeding confidence that indeed the victory is ours. As I leave, uh, I again remind you, I know the conference obviously continues tonight, tomorrow. I wish I could be here for the whole thing. But again, I've left you materials. If uh, you want to receive materials from us on an ongoing basis, sign up your name on the sheet that's on my table. You want to receive my, my, my um, little column by email every two weeks, leave your email address. Uh, and I, it will be my joy to continue uh, to collaborate with you to, to help you in any way that we can. As you continue to build a culture of life, do it with the joy and the peace that come from Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and that come only from Him, and that no one and nothing can ever take away. God bless you, and thank you. We just want to take this opportunity to thank Father Frank Pavone for all the work that he has done and is doing. <clears throat> he is a crusader. The Lord has asked him to do one thing, and he said yes to that one thing. If there's any way that we can be supportive to the cause of the pro-life movement, we owe it to ourselves and to our own children to do it. Father Pavone, we love you. And we pray for you every day from this moment on as we have, be, have prayed for our babies. Thank you for giving us a new awareness, affirming what we believe and teaching us what we didn't know. Thank you, Father.
please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.